Well, let's consider this opening account from the ninth chapter of Matthew's record of the life of the Lord Jesus. Now, if you know your Bible, you might be wondering if this can be the story of that paralyzed man who was lowered down through the roof of a house by his four friends. Well, you'd be correct. It is, but with that particular detail not recorded by Matthew. Those details are recorded for us by Mark and Luke, but it seems that Matthew concludes that those specific details are really not that necessary. Perhaps, I don't know, maybe he felt they could be something of a distraction. And those facts don't really play any part in what comes next, and Matthew wants to get on with building for us this picture of who Jesus is and what he came into the world to do. He's been doing that systematically through the 8th chapter, and he continues now in the ninth. And so Matthew has revealed a number of really significant things about the Lord Jesus. First of all, we have his account of this remarkable portion of teaching that Jesus gives in what we now call the Sermon on the Mount, in chapters 5 and 6 and 7. And we have recorded there Christ's remarkable ability and authority as a teacher. And Matthew doesn't just tell us that it happened and what the response of the people was. He actually gives us that huge record. Might not have been everything that Jesus said, but he gives us a very thorough overview of all the different things that Jesus taught on that particular day. And then as we move through chapter 8, we have the power of his gift of healing in verses 1 to 17, followed by his authority to even control the very forces of nature, as we would describe them in verses 23 to 27, as the storm is stilled in the middle of the sea. Then we see that all of the forces of evil are powerless in his presence, and they are completely subject to him at the end of chapter 8, as he deals with those demons who are possessing those men. And today we continue in that theme as Matthew continues to reveal the Lord Jesus to us. The theme of Christ's divine and supernatural power. And we see the level of amazement amongst the people, which is cranked up to an even higher degree. Well, they thought the authority of his teaching was something to behold, but they've never seen or heard anything like this at the end of this uh, account this morning. And that is matched by the increasing anger and opposition of most of the religious leaders. So let's have a look at this account that uh, Matthew records here as he continues to build for us this really comprehensive picture as to who the Lord Jesus Christ really is and why it is that he is important for us today and why you and I need to have dealings with this man, Jesus. Well, first of all, Matthew reveals Jesus to be the merciful Saviour. He is the merciful Saviour. 
The first truth, really, that we see in this passage is the mercy of Christ in his dealings with this man. And we learn here that the Lord Jesus is, is both righteous, because he's going to deal with this man's sins, but he's also full of compassion. Now, as we mentioned just before, Jesus has been on that eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and in the second half of chapter 8, uh, that's where that account took place. And then it, chapter 9 begins with him getting back into one of the boats, coming back across the Sea of Galilee onto the western side of the lake and to that more familiar part of the, the region around Galilee where Jesus uh, lived and ministered. And there's actually no record of Jesus ever going back to that eastern side. Now, he may have done, but it's not recorded anywhere in the Gospels that he ever went back to that eastern side. And where it talks about him coming back to his own city, that city, well, it's not really a city as we would think of it. It wasn't really the size of place that we would term a city today, but it's the town of Capernaum. So if you glance back to uh, chapter five, uh, verse 5 of chapter 8, you see there Jesus entering Capernaum. Uh, that's also the hometown of Peter and Andrew, two of his disciples. And Jesus will make Capernaum his base of operations, if you like, for much of his early Galilean ministry. And that would be the place where he would stay. He would go out from Capernaum and return to Capernaum. So that's the place that here is described as his own city. It has become his hometown for a while. And, and Matthew seems to think, well, we can actually put to one side the, the four friends, the full house, the business with the roof, um, let's just get straight to the point of what Jesus did for this man. Behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he says to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. So Matthew does at least acknowledge that Jesus recognises the faith of those who brought this man to him. Obviously, he's a paralytic lying on a bed. He didn't get there of his own accord. Someone brought him. Matthew acknowledges that. But while everyone assumed that this man's most obvious need was to have his physical paralysis dealt with, Jesus shocks them all by showing them that he has a far greater and more urgent need than his physical well-being. Christ's concern, as this man is brought to him, is to emphasize to everyone present the issue of sin in the life of us all and how all of us need to have our sins forgiven. Son, be of good cheer. And everyone's expecting Jesus to say, you're healed, get up and walk. And he doesn't. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. 
No, Jesus. What will bring this man good cheer is for him to be able to walk. No, says Jesus. What will truly, what will eternally, what will everlastingly bring this man good cheer? What will bring him a cheer that will never fade away? What will bring him a cheer that no one can ever snatch from him? Is if this man has his sins forgiven so that he can be reconciled to his God. That's the lesson Jesus very abruptly brings to all of the people that day. And that's the lesson that Matthew, as he records the life and ministry of Jesus, brings to you this morning as you have this passage open in front of you. How easy it is for us to place our physical needs at the top of the list. How very natural that feels. How easy it is to pray for people's physical need but to never have learned to pray for their spiritual well-being, regardless of their physical condition. Or even never having learned to pray that their spiritual well-being might even prosper, even if their physical condition remains in decline. That spiritually, that person can say, it is well with my soul. That's the lesson Jesus would impress upon us from this account that he makes sure Matthew records in the Scriptures. How much easier is it to try to meet people's physical needs rather than expending all kinds of mental and emotional energy trying to help them spiritually. Now, none of this is to say that the physical is of no consequence. Jesus has already demonstrated that in chapter 8, and he's going to show it again in chapter 9 with this man. He's not saying that our physical needs are of no consequence. But now is the time in his ministry to bring home to all of us a proper understanding of priority. Jesus highlights for us here the primacy, the priority of forgiveness with the words that he speaks here. It's evident that the man's friends want this man to be healed. Surely this poor man, presumably lying on his back looking up at Jesus, his hope of all hopes, is that this will be the last day that he ever spends for 24 hours on that bed. It is not so evident to anyone else but Christ at that moment that much more than that, this man needs Jesus to have business and do business with his soul more than anything else. And so the Lord Jesus points us to the importance of forgiveness by the very words that he speaks. The first thing he says. And, and it's not that this man has some sin which is causing the paralysis. 
Jesus elsewhere makes it clear that it's very, very unhealthy to try and make those kinds of comparisons. And there's nothing in what Jesus says to suggest that the reason for this man's paralysis is because of a particular sin and that that sin has to be dealt with first before the paralysis can be healed. Jesus doesn't teach that and to try and draw that conclusion would be to read into what's happening here something that it doesn't actually say. No, Jesus is just teaching us priority. He's teaching us that we need to contemplate sin far more than we ever do. Our own sins and the sins of others. And that we need to do so in a certain way. We need to see that our sinfulness is the greatest ailment that all of us have. No illness or weakness of body or mind has greater and longer lasting consequences than the devastating depravity of our soul. Our soul problem, if not dealt with, will cause us issues far beyond this short life. To remedy physical infirmity, but to still be heading to a lost eternity, is to have a very false and misleading sense of hope and joy. What's an extra ten years here? if you are faced with an eternity of torment. That's the way Jesus wants to encourage us to start thinking. What's a few extra better years here if you're still going to spend all of eternity under the wrath, the active wrath of God? Surely dealing with matters of eternity ought to take precedent over that which is only temporary and which is passing away. If you've ever been taken to A&E, what's the first thing that happens when you arrive at the accident and emergency department in the hospital? Triage. What is it that's wrong with you? Just how sick or injured are you? How serious is your condition? How urgently do you need to be treated? Have you just twisted your ankle or are you in cardiac arrest? That makes a big difference as to how they're going to react and respond. Jesus is giving us a lesson in divine triage. Are you taking note of what he's saying? Jesus responds to this man as the merciful saviour that he is. And he deals with the issue that he's come into the world to deal with. Because this is the most urgent issue. The issue of our sin. And Jesus highlights that for us here. Because it would be easy, as you read through chapter 8, it would be easy to imagine that Jesus is only here to deal with our physical well-being. And that's all he's interested in. And that's all that he's about. And so I can just go to him for those things and then carry on just however I want to, thank you very much indeed. But now we're caught up short all of a sudden. And Jesus says, no. 
Because all of these other things that Jesus has been doing, they have been simply to signify that this man has the power and authority to actually do what he's come to do. And that now is brought to our attention very dramatically in this simple account of what happens with this paralyzed man. There is nothing of greater consequence in this world than the issue of your sins before a holy and a righteous God. And Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he has the authority to declare forgiveness of sins. We've been thinking recently at various times about the work and the role of the Holy Spirit in salvation. And his primary role is to open up our hearts and minds so that we face this, so that we deal with this, so that Christ can deal with us. It's one of the most devastating things in the world to see ourselves as we truly are and to see that our greatest need is to have our sins forgiven. Have you seen that? Have you come to understand that? It's easy to delude ourselves that our sins, they are just not the big issue that the Bible makes it out to be. But Jesus says, no, they are. They are. Everyone in whom the Holy Spirit is doing a work of grace, they see their own sin. And if you've never seen your own sinfulness, then the Holy Spirit has not done that work in you. Not yet, at least. And as the Holy Spirit comes in and does his work of grace within us, the need becomes apparent to us. We begin to understand. This needs to be sorted. I need to get this right with God. This is the most urgent thing in the whole world for me to get dealt with. And God, by his Spirit, then makes clear to us that this Jesus Christ is the only Saviour and the only way. And this is precisely what Jesus wants you to see of him as he deals with this paralyzed man. That he has great compassion for those who are in need, but above everything else, he is the all-merciful saviour of men who has come to deal with our sins. He has mercy for those who are in the grip of sin. Is that you? Then you must not put off Christ. You need him like you've never needed anyone else. Those people on the eastern shore of Galilee, they put Christ off. They told him to go away. We don't need this here, they said. We don't need you here, they said. The scribes in this passage are going to put Christ off. Don't be like them. You need this Jesus. We sometimes pray fervently for our bodies or the bodies of loved ones to be healed in the midst of disease or accident. But then perhaps, crisis over, our prayers are put to one side. We can be fervent about the need of a cure for the body. How is your fervor when it comes to praying for those who are in need of salvation? How is your fervor when it comes to praying for those who are still in their sins and have not yet taken hold of Christ? How do the two compare? 
Christ reminds us here what a terrible tragedy it would be for this man's body, this man in front of him lying on this bed, what a tragedy it would be for this man's body to be healed, but for his soul to remain dead and cold and empty. For a man's body to be healed, and yet for his soul to continue condemned before the Lord. And so he points us to the forgiveness of sins. And he shows himself to be the merciful saviour that he is. This is why I've come, he's saying. This is the need you all have. And I am the only one who can meet it. So will you not come to him? Will you not receive him? Have you made him your saviour? But we see secondly in the passage that our hearts can be hard in unbelief. So hard. What a tragedy when men and women turn Jesus away. Like those people on the eastern shore have done. To just trifle with Christ when he's come to deal with you in this way. But we see the hardness of people's hearts in this passage. I wonder if that's you this morning. Is your heart still hard towards Christ and to what he's come to do for you? The response of the scribes is interesting because their response, which they're thinking in their heads, this man is a blasphemous man. They are both correct and mistaken. They are correct in the sense that it is only God who can forgive sins. They understand the implication of what Jesus is saying, that if this man is claiming to be able to forgive this man's sins, he is taking upon himself that which only belongs to God. Now, they've made that equation in their own minds, and the equation is correct. That only God can forgive sins. So they're right in that sense, but of course they're also totally mistaken. It's true that only God can forgive sins, but they've, co they've totally failed to recognise the man who is standing in front of them, that he is God. So they're correct, but they're also totally mistaken. They have not the eyes to see him. They have not the hearts to trust him. And Jesus demonstrates further his divine nature in knowing immediately their thoughts. Well, there's a frightening thing. As you sit here this morning, there is one who knows every thought that's running through your mind. There's one who knows every thought that's in your heart. He's your maker. He's your creator. And he loves you with an everlasting love. But he knows exactly what you think of him. And please note Christ's assessment of them. Why do you think evil in your hearts? That's quite a strong thing to say, isn't it? He doesn't just simply say, actually, you're wrong. Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? To say that Jesus 
is not God is evil. You are not gods if you say that. And everything in this world is, you're either of a heavenly father, or as Jesus would say to the scribes and the Pharisees, you are still of your father the devil. To say that Jesus is not God is evil. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 at verse 3. No one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so these men, Jesus says, that which is in their heart and all of these conclusions they're coming to about him is evil. That's a very strong thing to say. To reject Jesus Christ as being the Lord God is to be lost and in utter wickedness and condemnation still in your sins. These are two totally different, very contrasting positions that all men and women are in, either on the one side or on the other. This is really powerful stuff that's, that's here when we pause and just give it some thought. And Jesus poses this really interesting question in verse 5. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? It's a really interesting question. Now, of course, the immediate sense of it is this. If I declare that someone's sins are forgiven, how can such a thing ever be proven or disproven? Who's to know? Who's to say? But of course, if I command him to get up and walk, well, that requires clear evidence that he gets up and walks. So there is one sense in which it is much easier to say your sins are forgiven, because who would know? But if I command him to be healed and to get up, well, all eyes will immediately fall on the man. Well, let's wait and see. So, of course, Jesus will go on and heal the man to demonstrate that he really does have all power and all authority. But let's just continue to think about this question for a moment. Which is easier to say? Who can forgive sins? And pause for a moment and remember how it is that Christ's life and ministry is going to conclude. On the face of it, the answer is that it's easier to declare a man's sins forgiven. But do not forget what Christ ultimately would have to do in order to secure that forgiveness. 
do not forget that which Christ is going to do, which makes it possible for him to forgive sins. Do not forget that which Christ is going to do, which makes it possible for your sins to be forgiven. The words might be easy to say, but the reality of actually providing forgiveness for anyone's sins is far from easy. Because for Jesus, it would mean that eventually he would be taken hold of by wicked men. He would be mocked and beaten and abused and humiliated and crucified. Now which is easier to say? And so Jesus is, he's opening up all kinds of truth here for us to think about. But despite all that's going to take place here, the hearts of certain men in front of him remain hard and cold and unmoved and untouched. And even when that paralyzed man stands up and is leaping up and down for joy with his legs immediately strengthened, Uh, no months of physiotherapy uh, required in order that he learns how to walk with his newly strengthened legs. It is total, complete healing in in an instant and in a moment. There are some who still remained hard and cold-hearted in front of it all. You see, men and women will harden their hearts against God in the face of anything. Anything. Don't let anyone tell you it's just a lack of evidence. It's just just a lack of proof that keeps people from trusting in Christ. It isn't. You could put people in that crowd where Jesus was that day. They could stand and listen to Jesus say, get up and walk. And watch that man get up and walk and still reject him. Still refuse to believe him. Even faced with such clear-cut evidence as that. The kind of evidence that you or I could never produce in a million years today other than taking them to the page of Scripture and showing them there. It's not a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of proof. It's an issue of faith and trust and belief. And it's an issue of hard, sinful hearts which turn against God. It's their moral perversity and their own sinfulness which keeps them from believing and trusting. Which is why we've been seeing recently in some of our studies the necessity of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a sinner. It's stubbornness of heart which blinds the reasoning of the mind. That's what keeps people from trusting in Christ. And as we sit under the word of God week by week, we we need to make sure that that we we ourselves do not allow ourselves to be hardened with apathy and indifference to this word of truth and its claims upon our hearts and lives. How, How is your heart before the Lord this morning?
And then the third lesson I want us to see is that Jesus has power to heal and authority to forgive sins. Jesus is not simply declaring that somehow this man's sins have been forgiven. Jesus himself is doing the forgiving of sins. And this is the focal point of the story in verses 6 and 7. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Not simply to declare how sins can be forgiven. You can do that. I can do that. We can tell people how sins can be forgiven as we point them to the gospel and as we point them to Christ. That's not what Jesus is saying here. That the Son of Man has power to forgive. Jesus is doing the forgiving. He is the one who is doing the acquitting of sins for sinners. That's the issue. Matthew is exhorting you to behold in Christ not someone who is merely telling people how they can be forgiven, but the one who in himself has the power and the authority to forgive. That's why you need to deal with Jesus. That's why you need him. Jesus demonstrates his authority and his power. He evidences his deity and his godhood. He gives clear evidence of who he is. He's making an explicit truth claim here. I'm doing this that you may know I have the power to forgive you. I have the authority to forgive you. How can that be if Jesus is not God? So he's pressing home this claim of truth upon these scribes and all who are present and through the Bible, he's pressing this truth home on you this morning. You need to deal with this Jesus one way or another. You need to sort out where you stand with this Jesus because of who he is and the authority that he possesses. I want you to notice that with his command, as we've just mentioned, as on so many other occasions, his command when it comes to the healing of this man is fulfilled immediately and completely. Get up and go He gets up and goes. The Lord's power is seen in the immediacy and the completeness of the cure that this man receives. There's no hesitation whatsoever. It's total and it's done. The function of Christ's work, the function of this miracle in this passage is to attest to the claims that he's making about who he is. The function of this miracle is to prove and give evidence and to compel those who are present that they must acknowledge that this Jesus is Lord. So this miracle is an attesting sign. It's a sign that evidences his person, his claims, his authority. There is no dispute. There's no dispute about the miracle that he's done. 
The scribes don't question the miracle of the man's physical healing. And all of the people are left just marveling and glorifying God. The miracle of the man's physical healing is certain. But great men, no matter how great they are, don't go around forgiving people's sins. Great prophets, great teachers, great philosophers, they don't go around doing that. Only the sinless Son of God walks up to people and says, your sins are forgiven you. Now I can forgive someone something that's done against me, but it only affects me and that person with regard to that one particular issue, whatever that issue is. But that has nothing to do with their sin before God. And that's what Jesus is dealing with here for sinners. And the thrust of this whole passage is to show us that Christ has the power and authority to do just that. So his power over sickness that we've seen, his power over nature that we've seen, his power over the demons that we've seen, All of those things Matthew is building up to show us now that Jesus, he is the one who even has power over sin. The Son of Man has power over sin. Later we'll discover that he also has power over death. But Matthew wants to drive home this point. Don't doubt the power of Christ to forgive you your sins. Don't doubt who this Jesus is. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. And at verse 8, this little section concludes with the astonishment of the people. They marveled. It's a mixture of wonder and amazement. They are astonished. But it's not enough merely to be astonished. We see that they haven't yet made the connection. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. Who had given such power to men. Now do you see the problem there? Jesus was not simply a man to whom God had given authority. Jesus is God and has this authority in himself. But the people in the crowd haven't reached that point in their understanding yet. This is a great thing that God has done. They can see that. But this is just something that God has enabled an ordinary man to do. No. This is no ordinary man. This man is God who has the power and authority in and of himself because he is God. The people haven't made that connection yet. The scribes are correct. Only God can forgive sins. God doesn't delegate the forgiveness of sins to others. No man can ever forgive your sins. 
All that any man can ever do is point you to the one who can. And that is the unique person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is the Word made flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the man who is God. So we have the scribes resenting Jesus, the people being astonished. We're even told that the people glorify God, which is good, but they've still missed the point. So many of the people, well, they have a better reaction to what Jesus has done than the scribes did, but they still didn't understand that he claimed to be more than a man. Christ's proven claim is that he is the eternal I am. They see Jesus only as the Son of Man, as that term is used in Ezekiel, simply to refer to a mortal man. They haven't yet understood that Jesus is the Son of Man of Daniel, the second person of the Godhead, at the very right hand of power, the Ancient of Days. Their admiration of Christ is a warning to us because it's possible to study the Word and completely miss the point. It's possible to be impressed about the things that Jesus said and did, but to fail to grasp the truth of who he really is and why he really came. It's possible to be impressed with Christ. It's possible to be amazed by Christ, but yet not honour him by trusting and believing on him as your saviour. After Peter had preached on the day of Pentecost, and we read there that the people were cut to the heart and they asked what they should do. Peter didn't tell them that they just needed to be amazed. He didn't suggest that it was enough just to glorify God for what they'd heard. Now, they should be amazed, and they should glorify God for what they've just heard, but that's not enough. No, you must repent. You must turn from your sin. You must leave your old life behind and trust in Christ and follow him and be baptized in his name. Why? For the remission of sins. You need to have your sins dealt with by Christ. More than anything else in this world, more than anything else in this life, you need to have Christ deal with your sins. Jesus is not inviting you to embrace him as a great moral teacher today. He's calling you to embrace him as the living Son of God who alone can forgive you of your sins. So that regardless of what else may come your way, you can say and you will know it is well in my soul in Christ. And if you have not done that today, do it today. Do it now. Pray to receive Christ now as Saviour and Lord. If you're not sure how you should do that, come and see me. See one of the elders. If you're a young person, 
with Christian parents. Go and speak to mum or dad later today. If you're here with a Christian friend, speak to them. But do it. Do it today. And do it without delay. The Lord Jesus Christ is the merciful Savior who's come to save sinners more than anything else in this whole world. You need him for this. Because if you are forgiven in Christ, you are secure in him for all eternity. The day will come when all the things you're struggling with in this life will be over. And then, with him forever.